And so I actually ended up dropping out of high school, not once, but twice. I never graduated. And while all my friends were off to college, I was living with my parents, gaming up to 16 hours a day in their basement. I remember I was, I was drunk when they handed me my son in the hospital. They didn't know I was drunk. I worked with people who could stay abstinent from crack cocaine. And then they went back to prison because they could not stay abstinent from marijuana. They will send inappropriate pictures, primarily of their body parts. Our teens will send back their naked pictures or partially naked pictures. I had overdosed in eighth grade. I think that was shortly after I was suspended. Our teens are going through their hardest life transition in a world of rapid change and information anarchy. These are their stories and the advice from experts dedicated to helping them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. When I did my last episode, MJ Madness, the response I got was nothing short of astounding. Um, and the response I got was being accused of manufacturing an issue with a harmless substance so that I could make money off of solving a problem that didn't exist. I was accused of being part of some government conspiracy. I was accused of continuing to lie to the masses about the evils of the devil drug. And with every accusation, and I talked with every single person who accused me of this stuff, with every accusation came a response from me saying, didn't you hear me say I voted for medical marijuana? Didn't you hear me say that I do not blame the plant? Didn't you hear me say, if you really don't think it's a problem, come visit the facility and talk with some of the parents of the kids who are in the facility for treatment of addiction? Of course, no one accepted the invitation to come meet the kids or talk with the parents of the kids who are in the facility. No one could provide any evidence that I'm part of some government conspiracy, a government that is in the midst of legalization, by the way. More places are looking towards legalizing it than whatever's going on federally right now. I don't think anything's going to come of that. But... <laughs> The piece that really astounded me was that when I went back and visited the Facebook page of everybody who was call, uh, calling me names, and there was a lot of name calling and accusing me of things, and there were a lot of accusations, I went to all their Facebook pages, and I noticed a few things. Number one, they were all white males between the ages of uh, 30 and 50, and they all had children, either still in the house or grown. And, of course, they were all pot smokers. And that tells me that that's a niche market. Otherwise, it would have been much more aggressively random. So as I have this conversation with my guest, Doug, today, I feel the need to reiterate. I voted for medical marijuana, and I think there may be some legitimate use to medical marijuana and even CBD. And I think a lot more realistic research has to be done. That was never the point of my conversation. The point of my conversation was to confront the propaganda of marijuana because I believe that marijuana is borrowing the pages right out of the cigarette industry. 
to try to legitimize a product that is now completely manufactured, distilled. It's not a plant anymore. I don't buy that. And I used to grow it. I know what the plants look like. So this process is to once again bring on some guests who have been on the other side of their own struggles with addiction and their own experiences with marijuana and to present the opposing view to anyone who thinks that marijuana and smoking pot is going to save the world. It's going to cure all diseases. It's not dangerous at all. It's not, nothing is that. It's not about marijuana. It's about, there's another lie being told. It's just that the, the people who once said we're being lied to are now lying to everybody. And I truly do believe that. So we're going to, we're going to continue to confront the propaganda. My guest today is about to publish his book called That's Why They Call It Dope. And his name is Doug Marar. This is Beyond Risk and Back. Doug, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate having a, a little bit of company uh, standing out here in the, uh, in the spotlight, having rocks thrown at me by people who love smoking pot. Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. I just want to first and foremost say that, you know, I really want to commend and honor you for what you're doing here in Colorado by taking a stand to educate people on the truth about marijuana. You know, I learned a lot of, from you and your first guest on the show, Avani Bilger, and the wisdom and counsel has been very helpful. And I uh, just want you to know you're definitely making a difference out there. I appreciate that, Doug. Thank you very much for saying that. And uh, our listeners are parents, teachers, and clinicians who I feel right now are caught in the middle of the old propaganda. Oh, the devil weed is everything that's going to kill you and drive you crazy. And the new propaganda, it's going to save the world. And don't know which way to turn. And um, so I'm going to present the hey, it's not as glorious as people are saying it is. There's still a very real conversation around marijuana that has to be had. So that's that's uh, that's why I had you on, because I think you've got a story to tell, and I think you've got a, a, a view of this that I think a lot of people who maybe tried pot in college or smoked for a year or so and then found it wasn't for them, and now their kids are really struggling with it, they need to hear your perspective on it. So I appreciate you being here. And so Doug, let's, let's start right in. Uh, let the listeners know what it was like being Doug and how you ended up where you are. Well, you know, I, you know, I started smoking fun as a teen, you know, around 15 years old. So I've been smoking, you know, I smoked for over 35 years, but the addiction actually happened over time. You know, it started out as fun, just like all addictions do, but I uh, started leaning on weed to ease the stress of life. And, you know, I want to start out by saying that what I'm going to share today is really just based on my experience and my relationship with marijuana and the way it was for me. That doesn't mean it's necessarily the same for everyone. But I also want to say as a society, we were really never trained to think critically. We've always just taken facts as facts. And unfortunately, they're not always facts. So, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, there are many listeners already thinking, hey, don't panic. It's organic. What's the big deal? Weed is just a harmless plant, and that's just what I used to think, especially when it was just a plant. But it's actually, you know, much more of a psychoactive drug today, and I actually refer to today's weed as hippie crack. And, you know, the question is, marijuana addictive is usually a question that always arises, 
in a discussion like this. So, you know, I just want to address the elephant in the living room. I know many folks will still want to, you know, respond with a knee-jerk reaction. But from my experience, we was extremely addictive to some people. And that's why I decided to write the book. That's why they call it dope, what they didn't tell you about marijuana. And really my goal and purpose in writing the book is not to demonize weed or tell people not to use marijuana. It's to help educate people and share some of my firsthand experiences to expose the lie that marijuana is just a plant so that people can make an informed decision. Because when I grew up, it was just, hey, it affects your short-term memory and, you know, it's similar to alcohol and it's not socially accepted. But obviously a lot has changed now. And, you know, one of the most deceiving parts for me was uh, I was very high functioning, which, you know, turned out to be one of the primary reasons that kept me deceived for so long. I wasn't the stereotypical reefer addict sitting on the couch in a cloud of smoke. So it was really easy to disregard the thoughts of being addicted or marijuana having any negative effects. You know, I've had a successful career in sales for over 15 years. I was in a respected job. I worked in a highly regulated uh, and highly technical selling environment, consulting physicians and surgeons in the operating room, and still burning daily without any red flags. Married to a phenomenal woman of over 20 years with three beautiful kids, living in a nice neighborhood. I've been physically active all my life, training as an endurance athlete, riding my bike and pushing the limits on eight to 10 hour bike rides. And this actually lends credence to why the International Olympic Committee has deemed marijuana performance-enhancing drug because it does reduce anxiety and increases heart rate and reduces pain. The other deceiving part for me of why it kept me in denial was I didn't experience any memory loss. As a matter of fact, my friends actually call me Rain Man because I have a photographic memory. And I also don't have an addictive personality and I'm extremely disciplined. So, you know, when you look at those from a compartmentalized standpoint, you know, it, it was easy for me to, to stay in denial. But really from the outside, no one could really tell how, how marijuana was affecting me and my family. But if you really dug deep, the effects of marijuana were deep and still are. And I was, I was functioning okay at certain areas because again, I only focused on, uh, those areas and never looked at my life as a whole. But, you know, so I thought everything was fine, but the areas that we really stole uh, in my perspective, are the most important, and that is emotionally and with my family as well as spiritually. And you, know, and you mentioned the demographics of the folks that were really um, kind of on fire, um, and, and you mentioned they were mostly parents, and that's really what I want to hit on is the fact that, you know, I've been physically present for my kids and my wife for, for all those years, but I really wasn't present emotionally. I was comfortably and chronically numb. And I use the term, I was hooked on chronics. And I, I was. I uh, I rarely engaged in parenting. You know, I'm telling on myself, but, you know, this is the, the good, bad, and the ugly, and mostly bad and ugly. You know, part of that was due to being in a fog and not really noticing that my kids needed me. And part of that was due to shame, feeling like, who am I to tell you how to live your life when I'm smoking dope? and living in secrecy and leading a double life. And, you know, I always desired a spiritual relationship with our creator, but because of weed and how it affects your mind, I had no genuine spiritual connection. And I would say that my kids have been affected by my choices the most, and that is absolutely my biggest regret, because even though 
I can rebuild. I can never get those times back. You know, marijuana can be a thief in your life, but it's, it's a silent thief. I want to talk about, it's really wonderful. You've, you've presented some really counter, uh, some contradictions to the, the stereotypical stoner, which is what I was. I was the lazy parent who couldn't keep a job, who would, who would sit on the front porch of a tiny little cabin in the mountains strumming a guitar half there while my daughter played out in the yard and had to entertain herself, struggling to pay bills, had more excuses than resources. Um, definitely my entire social life and identity was wrapped around it. And you seem to come in to present this, this concept of the high functioning and the, and the very successful and the endurance athlete and all this type of stuff. And then you, and then you provided the counter to it to say, I wasn't there, you know, for the kids and we're not there. I've, I have had people tell me they were better parents when they were high. And if that's the case, then you got to get some therapy because being high doesn't make you a better parent. I've had people tell me they were better drivers of a car when they were high. So it's safer for them to drive their children in a car. And I have reported people to CPS for that because that's a, a terrible thing to say. And I'm a mandatory reporter. So tell me about the rock bottom experience. Tell me, you did you end up in jail? Were you broke? Did you did you get fired? Like, did you did it did it bust out? Did you end up doing cocaine or anything like that? You know, it's, it's such a great question, Aaron, because one of the other misleading characteristic traits about marijuana is that many experienced reefer addicts may not necessarily hit rock bottom. You know, and although everybody's rock bottom looks doesn't look the same, you know, you know, on, on marijuana, you may not end up in jail. You may not lose your job with your car, you know, upside down in a ditch, but you might, but not like you would on other drugs like cocaine or heroin or alcohol. Its effects are so much more subtle, and marijuana is much more insidious than any other drug or addiction that I'm aware of. And, you know, you were just talking about folks saying that there are better drivers and better parents and whatnot, you know, that's just part of the illusion because you really just lose sight of reality and your priorities become skewed, but you really can't see it when you're in the cloud because weed directly affects the part of the brain, I believe it's the prefrontal cortex, that recognizes that there's a problem. Kind of like not having enough sense to get out of the rain, even though you know you'll get soaked if you don't move. You know, weed can really paralyze you, even if you want to get clean, and it can be really hard to break the cycle, especially for long-term users. And, and I think that, you know, even when somebody wants to, to get clean and they recognize, this, you know, a lot of the uh, derogatory effects that I've shared, you know, the real caveat is that since THC stays in your body for approximately 30 days, unlike all the other drugs that stay in for hours or maybe a, a, day, a couple of days, it's really difficult to have the clarity needed to make good decisions, even for the casual user. And that's why it's so deceiving for even recreational users that they think they can quit anytime just because they may only indulge a few times a week or a few times a month. But from my experience in the research, it's because until you get outside of the 30-day mark, you really don't know what you're dealing with until the swelling goes down, so to speak. So what was your rock bottom? What was the thing that made you say, I got to stop? Well... I've been married for 22 years, and I kept it from my wife for 16 years. So, again, that speaks to the ability to be high-functioning, the ability 
that you can go pretty underground with this habit. And it's really almost like having another girlfriend because obviously you're accounting for time. You're, you're always putting in a buffer so that you can, you know, I, you know, hit duck blinds. I call them because I didn't smoke in my car. But as far as what really changed for me so that I started to want to walk in freedom was I just got tired of the ball and chain of being a prisoner and not wanting a substance to make me feel normal. And uh, and that's really what it came down to is because I just realized that marijuana was interfering with the things that are important to me and what I stand for and really was misaligning me with my values. And, you know, I was one of those guys that truly thought, I can't imagine ever stopping. Like, I'm just thinking, when I'm 85, I'm still going to be hitting the pipe, you know? And what really wasn't making sense started making sense. And and so until I, uh, you know, my, my wife drew a line in the sand after, you know, obviously exposing this secret, this double life that I carried, she literally said, if you do it again, you know, obviously it went on for a couple of years after it was exposed. But she said, if you smoke dope again, I'm going to leave. I'm, and, and I'm going to leave with the kids and, you know, the, the whole story. But guess what? I just hit it better and continued to burn. So having a lot to, to gamble and risk, you know, it was, uh, it was stressful again, you know, leading a double life. And then obviously feeling like, you know, your children don't respect you because it's obvious that you have been living a life that's uh, lacking integrity. I think just the combination of, you know, everybody's rock bottom looks a little different, but I think just getting tired, I almost felt like a Tesla uh, electric car. You know, when things were good, I was all charged up, but I felt like I was tethered because, you know, once you become a frequent user and especially if you, you know, hit the pipe in the morning, you've got to hit it again and you've got to hit it again. And then before you know it, you're not having fun or really feeling normal until you're, you know, until you're back in the haze, you know, and that is your normal. That becomes your normal. I would say the combination of just being tired of being a prisoner, wanting the best out of life, you know, feeling like that really that life had stolen so much. Marijuana had stolen so much from my life and my family that, you know, I just wanted restoration. That was really what it came down to. And, you know, but again, because marijuana is so insidious, you really don't know that you're living in a fog. You really don't. You think, well, it's all relative because if, you know, the average, you know, the, the marijuana content, and I know that's going to come up, but it's so different now that it's, it's so powerful and so strong that, you know, you smoke it once in the morning and once in the afternoon, you're pretty much cooked all day and, and even halfway through the night. You know, I think really, Aaron, just tired of living uh, the lie. You're really, quite honest. you're really presenting a different perspective here because I'm listening to you talk and, you know, in, in reading your bio, you're not a therapist, you're not a doctor, you're not a scientist, you're not a counselor, you're not a, an addiction specialist. This book you're writing seems to come from a, a place of saying, there's something you're missing or or there's something that you're being told that's not true. I guess what I want to say is that you're 
you kind of you're kind of the the regular guy who's who's trying to make up for lost time. Is that fair? You know, it is. It really is because what what I really noticed about you know when I do some introspection and I look back at my relationship with marijuana, one of the other huge parts of dysfunction is the isolation that it creates. You know, between you know just your peer circles that overlap. I started smoking before it was legal and before it was even remotely socially acceptable. I definitely went underground with it. And if it meant being by myself and riding my bike or, you know, not sure who you can really share your your struggle with just due to shame, you know, it really forces you to live in two worlds. As I mentioned, it's like having a girlfriend, but also the isolation from the standpoint of I really found that once I started building community and connection, those were huge missing links for me because really by sharing the struggle with others, I found support and accountability and connection. And I think that's what we're all striving for. But I know not everyone has to go underground with marijuana use, but I know that there are a lot of closet smokers out there. And so, yeah, I would say that living a life of isolation was a huge part and just being so dedicated. I mean, for example, if I was planning a trip to go to Moab to ride my bike for a few days in camp, you know, back before it was legal, and if I couldn't find it, I just wouldn't go. I would stay home until I found it. And, uh, you know, I, I think that this is a real sad motto, but really all I care about, you know, for many years was just getting by and making enough to pay the bills. You know, my priorities were burning fern and riding my bike. My motto was hard times with dope were better than good times without dope. Hmm. And I truly believe that. I'm really fascinated by this because I think as I as I look back to my last podcast, MJ Madness with Avani, I think one of the things that I did wrong was approaching it from a place of of trying to throw facts at, at people who have the same amount of facts to throw back, you know, and where you get your facts then becomes debated. Then you get accused of making up facts. And what I really appreciate, Doug, is that you're coming with the the emotions of it. You're coming with the really, and I rem, everything you're talking about, you know, you talk about like skipping a trip because you, you don't got a bag to take. You know, I remember doing that and you're coming from a really real place. And earlier you talked about how marijuana, you know, it, the pain relief aspect of it for athletes or, or, you know, for, for the day to day use. Were you using to relieve pain? And if so, what was the pain that you were trying to get away that you started at 15 and got hooked and 35 years later, you're still using it? What did you have a painful childhood or did you have a good one of those too? Did you have a normal childhood? You know, I had a normal childhood. What I will say is that, you know, I grew up in the swamps of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I'd always known that I wanted to live out West. And so becoming a cyclist, Obviously, you can only be so limited living on flat ground. And so to make a long story longer, what really became important to me was where I was and not what I was doing. So, you know, as an adolescent, I was obviously uh, hitting the pipe a lot. And um, I guess I, I joke and I say that I miss career day. And I, I think by not being really content and happy vocationally, 
it was definitely a void that I was trying to fill. And so obviously when you're numb, you don't have to deal with it near as much. But, you know, I guess I didn't realize that smoking was actually causing anxiety instead of relieving it. You know, of course, if you smoke a bowl, you don't have any anxiety or depression. But in the long run, you know, marijuana actually exacerbates anxiety and depression. And that's one of the biggest lies that the media and the dispensaries are conveying. The dispensaries and the marketing, you know, mar- you know, marketing marijuana as a cure or remedy for anxiety and depression. But there's not any evidence that there's any medical benefit from THC. The medical benefits are from the CBD, but that's only part of the equation. It's not being communicated. You know, I know I've turned 180 degrees on my views, but in my opinion, you know, using marijuana for medical benefits is only a loophole, you know, to use weed for some people. And we know that CBD has multiple medical benefits and a game changer for many people. I'll never deny that, um, it's, you know, in regards to an effective medication. But, you know, to answer your question, uh, you know, I was using it, you know, anywhere from, you know, as I mentioned, as an endurance athlete, you know, you know, at least, you know, every season I would break you know, the 10 hour mark on my bike. And, you know, it's easy to, you know, to go ride for four or five hours, but to double that at 10 hours, you know, I probably wouldn't have been doing that without marijuana. I got a, I got the question because as I'm, I'm, I'm reading your bio again as you're talking and I'm realizing that you've, you've been using for about 30 years when it was legalized in Colorado, you know, somewhere around there. Did you vote for it? Did you yep. celebrate? Did you get really excited about the, the dispensaries and all their new brands? Did you partake in the new upswing of this, the thickness and the saturation of the THC and the isolation of THC? I think uh, silently I may have uh, appreciated it to a certain degree because, again, this this was my girlfriend or my personality in a bag at times. But, again, because I was underground and a closet smoker, you know, I had to keep my celebratory actions uh, under wraps. So, but I have to say, even though I was as dedicated as they come, I have to say I, I had mixed emotions. Because I think it was more subconscious that I could see what it had been doing to my life. And uh, again, I don't have an addicting personality and I'm extremely disciplined. So I, uh, it really didn't affect my life much once it became legal. Um, because, you know, I, I still had resources that I was getting it from. I didn't necessarily run out to the dispensaries. And so I guess to me, it didn't really necessarily affect me one way or the other. Hopefully that makes sense. It does. Did you, how did you hide the, the money spending from your wife? I think a lot of times it was, you know, I would sell a bike and maybe skim a hundred bucks off the top. I would launder a little bit of lunch money. You know, when you're dedicated, you figure out ways. And, and I mean, again, I was super dedicated. I mean, I would drive an hour and a half in a snowstorm at night for a bong hit. I mean, I was dedicated. I was definitely dedicated. And, you know, one of my analogies for my relationship with marijuana was either I could live life in AM radio mode, which is life without being buzzed, or I could live my life in FM Dolby, living in stereo. And that's kind of how I I looked at it. And I'm thinking, you know, once I realized that you could, you know, 
be a, a daytime user. And, and again, you know, if you try to use alcohol or pain pills or cocaine and then go talk to people, they're going to know something's up. Whereas marijuana is so high functioning that when you're good at it, you, you can walk up to a police officer before it was legal and look at them straight in the eye. And, I mean, again, I worked in the medical field where I was face-to-face talking in depth about, you know, patient types, disease states, anatomy, and getting into really technical conversations. You've said a couple times, I just want to throw this at you and let you take it, do whatever you want with it. I have parents ask me all the time, how do you know they're addicted? How do you know they're an addict? How do you know that it's a problem? And I have a pretty pat answer because at my facility, a small proportion of the kids, sometimes 50%, every now and then 60% of the participants in my program are dealing with drug addictions. But addiction to me is not about a drug. Addiction to me is about a repetitive habituated behavior that is compensatory in nature. And that means that there's pain somewhere that's being covered up and it could be covered up by sex or food or cutting or running away or uh, anger and sometimes depression and suicidality and sometimes anxiety and isolation and drugs and alcohol. And so when a parent asks me, and I'm saying this because you've said a couple times that you, you don't have an addictive personality. And to me, an addictive personality is someone who's been lying, stealing, sneaking, hiding, justifying the need for it, rationalizing the financial stress that it causes. And so far, you've told me that you've been at some point every one of those. You were sneaking around for 16 years. You lied about it. You you just told me that you would you'd skim off the top, whether you were stealing from yourself or stealing from your children by not putting all the money toward the, from the bike you sold towards your kids. You're hiding things in the house, outside the house, and you were rationalizing financial financial stress. And ultimately... These are all really risky behaviors, and you talked about the pressure of being found out and living under the stress. So if that's not addiction, if that doesn't make you an addict, what are you and why are you different? Well, you know, I think that's part of of the whole challenge with marijuana is that, again, you know, it's so hard to determine that you're being under the influence because it's so insidious that it clouds your judgment, but you don't realize it's clouding your judgment. And I think also it's a protective defense mechanism for you to overlook uh, certain dysfunctional behavior that you're um, engaging in because it's just part of the sickness. And, uh, you know, and you're comparing it, well, it's not as bad as this drug or it's not as bad as this addiction. But, you know, I think you said it on your first show, uh, you know, 180 degrees of sick is still sick. Right. It's – um. You know, it's just part of, you know, you're, you're, it's almost like, it's almost like love conquers all. Well, I mean, when, when you're in love with something like marijuana, you overlook so much, even if you don't mean to or want to. It's just because you don't see the dirtiness that it is because you're in love with it. And so it takes a long time to get outside of, of that with uh, unbiased, clean, clear eyes to be able to recognize some of that. Now, my guest in the last show that I just did about drug courts, he said the only way to understand the damage that you're doing with using is to 
not use. Like people who are using do not and cannot see the damage that is being done. You have to be sober to see that the damage was done. And one of the things that really inspired me to confront with my daughter is because my daughter was very young when I was a very active user and I was a very active user. The time, how much I cost us in time, the time I spent, you know, you you talked about driving for an hour and a half through a snowstorm to take a bong hit. Oh my God. Hours I would wait in someone's house for them to play their games of power so that I could finally just buy a bag from them. The amount of time I spent thinking, worrying, stressing, using, um, being relieved by the effects of my usage and the guilt I felt for using. Man, what I could do with that time now. But you have to be sober to, to experience the time. And I get that. I get that's what you're saying. So you're still within the early stages of your recovery. Is that correct? Correct. It's been less than a year. How do you, and what is so, your focus of maintenance? How do you maintain your recovery? Like what is your, what's your new habit? What's your healthy habit? Well, I would say, you know, I started to build community, sharing my struggles with friends, family, and mentors, and, and really in order to you know, experience the connection. But I wanted to back up a touch. You know, you asked me, you know, what else has changed as far as me walking in freedom? And I would have to say, that one of the biggest things that changed with a game changer for me almost overnight was once I started to become educated on what marijuana was doing to my body from a brain chemistry standpoint, you know, its effects became much more tangible rather than just going by what people are telling me not to do it. And that's why programs like D.A.R.E. don't necessarily work and can even make things worse. So once I learned, for example, that when you use marijuana regularly, the brain quits producing the endocannabinoids, you know, the endogenous production of neuromodulators, it's difficult for the brain to calm calm yourself down naturally when you're not ingesting marijuana. So kind of like when you take melatonin to sleep on a regular basis, the body quits producing natural melatonin, so it becomes difficult to sleep on your own. So to me, this was huge, but it clicked between being sick of the crutch and wanting to be present in life Obviously, you know, doing the same thing over and over and expecting changes is never going to result. You know, it's basically insanity. But I would say the missing link that I had never done before is, is basically, and, and part of my recovery has been between writing the book and just really connecting with people spiritually, community-wise. And I feel like each time you tell your story, your roots grow deeper. And because I've kept it a secret for so many years, I just know that there are so many other people out there in the same boat that I've been in that know that there's a difference. And they started out and it started out as fun, but then it just, you know, became luggage. And, you know, we've all got a bag of rocks to crack. And because marijuana is so different and such an, you know, insidious, silent thief, that it's a lot of it is just exposing the truth and, and wanting to. You know, at least for me, and, and wanting to share my story because I know that there are so many other people out there that are stuck. To use a response that I know is going to come from this podcast, that ultimately when when I have someone who's feeling that my 
perspective and point of view has threatened their lifestyle or belief system or value system, and they become aggressive and argue and name call and accuse and all that type of stuff, that when I counter it with invitations, facts that I have, the doctors that I work with, the psychologists, psychotherapists, counselors, and specialists and experts and neuro neuroscience teachers, I ultimately get handed the line, well, would you just prefer that I drank? Would you, so do you think alcohol's any different? So are you saying that people should just go back to alcohol? So alcohol's worse. I always get the, the alcohol deferment is what I call it. That when, when a marijuana smoker feels cornered, they say alcohol's worse. And one of my responses has always been, look, just because you're telling me you're robbing a 7-Eleven instead of a bank, well, at least it's not a bank. Well, at least I didn't kill somebody. It doesn't negate the, the struggle that your brain might be having by using this plant. So let me say that to you, and I want to get your take on it. So what? Marijuana is evil. Would you rather I just go back to alcohol? It's all about, you know, everybody's relationship with a particular substance, and it's somewhat case by case. but you know, if I had to quantify it and ask what the difference is between having a drink or a glass of wine versus smoking a joint is, you know, when when you have a drink, you can still be functional. I'm not talking about inebriated, but, you know, what marijuana actually does is it confuses the brain. And so the difference between the two is that, you know, in my opinion, is that, you know, with marijuana, you know, you, you take one hit and you can be cooked for hours, especially since it has reverse tolerance, depending on someone's THC levels. And so, you know, you can still be social uh, with with a beer uh, or, or two. And, uh, you know, it's 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 obviously a very controversial subject. And, you know, it's easy to resort back to, hey, well, it's better than alcohol, because that's really what society is, is, has taught us. But again, you know, I think that we can be extremely addictive to some people, just like alcohol can be extremely addictive to some people. And and for me, I mean, I like to drink a beer, but it's no big deal. And it's really part of uh, why it was so tricky for me is because while I'm like, well, I'm not out drinking, I can still wake up tomorrow morning and be fresh and go exercise. And, and, and you know, mar- marijuana on paper isn't physically addicting like alcohol is. But again, it's very addicting emotionally to some people. You know, I, I think it comes down to everybody's body chemistry being a little different. And, you know, I just know that just by taking one hit can change your emotions within seconds. And it, you know, alcohol doesn't do that. So you can still be social. And I guess, you know, it's probably a silly analogy, but it's, you know, to me, smoking marijuana is like, kind of being pregnant you're either you're either high or you're not (laughs) let me let me ask and this is confronting question are you an addict i guess i'm a reformed addict addict because you know i smoked it for over 30 years and even when i wanted to stop i couldn't so i guess i would consider myself in recovery and i know people are going to say well it's just marijuana what's the big deal why are you belly aching about it and, you know, as I mentioned, we've all got a bag of rocks to crack. And even though it is just a plant and even though it is organic, I still felt the same pull that someone for heroin 
or cocaine or pain pills or alcohol would feel. And, and I did. I daydreamed about it. I would go to bed at night sometimes thinking I can't wait to wake and bake. And so even when I tried to refrain, I couldn't. And, and maybe, I, you know, you know that song by Neil Young, you know, every, every junkie is like the setting sun because there'd be days I'd be like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I haven't smoked. And, you know, and as it gets closer to four or five o'clock, you're like, well, I'm either going to slide by so-and-so's house or I know that I've got a couple of nuggets tucked. And, you know, it was a roller coaster for, for many years. And I, 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 uh, so I guess to make a long story longer, I, I guess I am an addict. You've got three teenagers, yeah? I do. When parents hear their teenagers say, Everything and give the excuses that both you and I have given to ourselves, our spouses, our parents. Um, what, what's your advice for parents? How should they respond to that? It's just a plant. It's not addictive. It cures cancer. Here's a list of the health benefits. What do you want parents to do when they're, they find their kid has got a, you know, an ounce tucked away in a sock drawer and they can smell it in the house and the kid's not talking during dinner anymore and it's just a plant and they've got all the Google facts to back up their rationalizations. What what, what would you tell a parent to do? Well, you know, you know as well as I do that you could pull up 10 facts of why marijuana is a good idea and 10 facts of why it's not a great idea. And so... You know, I think the first thing is, is basically addressing it and, and not letting walls build and making it a taboo subject. I think really airing out the trash and talking about it and obviously confronting them is, is first and foremost. And, uh, you know, for me, it was very difficult and challenging because I was living a double life and I was underground with it. So a lot of the parenting fell on my wife and I didn't necessarily want to expose it because it was already a sore subject in my home. And so, um, you know, but as far as advice, I would say talking about it and talking about, you know, the fact that, you know, again, all of the, I'll say all of it, most of the knowledge um, that we have is old knowledge. I mean, I know folks talk about how we don't know the long-term effects of marijuana, especially on the young adolescent brain. Uh, we know it's not good, but we, uh, you know, we don't really have the facts on it. But the problem with that is we're comparing apples to oranges because the, the data that we, that we look at, because as you know, as a recap, you know, back in the sixties and seventies, the THC content was one to two percent. And, you know, six percent was a lot. And usually it was all less than ten percent, even the strongest of all strains back in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s. Uh, but now, you know, we're looking at a whole different animal. And, you know, the average THC content now being 36%. So if it went from 6% to 36%, and then the higher concentrations for the uh, wax and the dabs being 90 plus percent THC, you know, the, you know, the worst case scenario is that some of these folks, these young kids, you know, it may only be some casual use, but when you have something that's that strong, you know, there are, you know, there are reports of, of young teenagers being, uh, triggered into psychosis. 
What? So is that going to happen to any kid that takes, you know, uses the high concentration or any marijuana? No, but you don't know until it's too late. So it's not that you want to, like, try to scare them to death, but the bottom line is, is that, you know, the data that we have, there's still so much unknown about the long-term effects of marijuana and much less the really strong concentrations is a game changer. Did you come clean with your parents as well? You know, I did. I sure did. I came clean with my parents, uh, my in-laws, you know, and obviously having overt conversations with my kids. And, you know, and I, I found that, uh, you know, I'm telling more and more people. And obviously being on a on a radio show, obviously I'm letting the cat out of the bag. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, you know, I did. But, you know, I only told my parents, you know, a few years ago. Let me back up. My wife told my parents uh, the first go around, but um, I was just doing damage control. I was just trying to, you know, figure out a way to hide it better. It, it took a while. So once uh, things were exposed, you know, things were really rocky. And, you know, again, I know not everyone has to go underground, but, you know, keeping it from my wife for, for all those years, you know, there's still trust issues at my home and I've never kissed another woman. I've, I've been, you know, a pretty darn good husband, but something as big as this, it cuts deep. You know, it's, it's, it's a big deal, you know, as far as when you have two lives and two worlds that come together, light and darkness can't live at the same time. I want to say in closing here that as this book comes out, and I really, I really want you to see this through simply because it's going to make a lot of people Red, red around the collar. It's going to make people hot. It's going to make people angry at you for not just, not just the evidence, but you know, that you can provide and, and who you talk to, to get the, uh, to get the medical evidence to back these up, to back your facts up is going to be very important. They've got to be, they've got to be extremely clean as far as where their research comes from. Because like we said, everybody can show up to the the debate table with a page of facts. But what inspires me the most about what you got going on is that you're talking about it from the the guy who was smoking pot for thirty five years. You're not you know, like I said, you're not the scientist, you're not the doctor, you're not the therapist, you're not the psychologist, you're not the brain surgeon. You're just a guy that smoked pot for thirty five years and got tired of living under its influence and found something else when you got sober. And that story does need to be told. And when you tell it, because how many times you reminded me of stuff that I went through, that's going to be the hard part is for someone who's actively using to hear you tell their story and they may not be ready to confront it. And their response will be to be very aggressive and angry towards you. But I want you to know that there are people who are standing out here in the middle of the field, okay with having people throw rocks at them until they're ready to deal with their own stuff. So do it. Finish this book. Get it published. Get out there. Get on the talk shows. Get a TED Talk. Promote yourself because this story needs to be told. Parents, teachers, and clinicians need to hear this side too. You've you've told a very real side of this, and I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you having me. Everybody does have a bag of rocks to crack, and, you know, I just think that going through life numb, so that you can feel normal uh, until you get numb again is really futile and it just gets old. So, 
you know, for other folks out there with the ball and chain that don't feel like uh, they want to go through life uh, half-cocked, so to speak, just know that there's hope because if, you know, if I can do it, anybody can do it because it was ingrained in who I was and who my identity was. I appreciate you having me as a guest, Aaron. Of course, Doug. Folks, parents, remember the rule. Take care of yourself first. Take care of your adult relationship second. You take care of your children third because in that way, we do our best work with our kids. My guest today was Doug Marar. His book, When Release, is called That's Why They Call It Dope. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, and we will talk again soon. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to FireMountainPrograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.